Take your Bibles, turn to Hosea chapter 6, Hosea 6. We have spent five chapters dealing with the judgment of God. That always gets people to come out to hear about that. This is demonstrated towards his people. Uh, in Hosea's case, his judgment was expressed towards the children of Israel. Now, of course, it was a divided kingdom. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. So it was with both. But they were rebellious. So God had, had them in like a stage of discipline. And that falls under the judgment of God. Most people think that when this is the case and the Bible talks about judgment, that it's too harsh. That's the way the normal person on the street thinks about it. Understand, though, that our perception is largely cultural, is it not? In other words, we adopt a way of thinking that is largely set by the so-called experts of society. And when the experts are at odds with the Bible, even many so-called Christians will give the nod to the experts. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. Such was a scenario about 10 years ago. I had a young mother come to me that was beside herself, uh, dealing with some of the rebellion in her children. She loved her children. She did the best that she could. But they were in continual rebellion, and it got worse. When I asked her about how she was coping, the conversation turned to spanking. And she was a professional. And she said that she learned that this was not the way to deal with children. And I agreed with her that spanking was not a panacea. Uh, some episodes call for other ways of, of dealing with children. I also agreed that some parents abuse it. I explained an approach of using it only when there's clear rebellion, uh, when children have disregarded instructions. So I asked her to try a two-week experiment. Clearly communicate the boundaries to your children, and if they disregard the instructions, you convey to them they'll get spanked, and then when you do that, you communicate your love for them. She called me in two weeks, and she said, there has been a miracle with my children. Those were her words. There was a miracle with my children. I'm not saying this happens with all children. Some parents have unique circumstances, but dismissing a practice that the Bible recommends, I think, deserves reconsidering, right? We should not be surprised in a society that murders babies and then think it abuse to spank children that it's confused, right? The culture, I think, loses our respect as the first source for advice. Like the discipline of our children, sometimes we have to be reminded of the purposes of God's uh, discipline for his children, and we need to not be weary of it. As I know, if you're a young parent, you get weary of discipline, right? Um, and the kids get weary of it too. <laughs> um, but that's not uh, that's not unusual, because we have this out of Hebrews. It says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. I think the implication is we often are weary by it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, a couple clear, obvious things that it's saying. Number one, the Lord disciplines his children. Uh, he chastises. And he does so because we are his children. And he loves us. And this produces endurance when we respond humbly. Those who are repelled by God's discipline are spurning this intimate relationship with God. And God desires that for all of us. But if we're spurning his discipline, you can only get so close. We can expect that discipline will be painful for a season. He's not asking us to be sadomasochists. He's saying this is going to be painful for a season, but this is a perspective that I want you to have in the midst of it. We learn to be trained by it, the passage says, to grow in righteousness and holiness and faithfulness. Notice it doesn't say, like it and be happy. Righteousness, holiness, and faithfulness. There are aspects to the Christian life that don't always produce a smiley face. It's not all roses, but they are hard and they are necessary. When we have our senses trained well, we're not going to be enticed by what is shiny and louder and prettier. We learn to grow and mature and be prepared by the tougher trials of life. And instead of rebuffing them, saying, wow, God must have something for me because this is a tough ride. So here in Hosea 6, we read of what was supposed to be a confession as a result of God's discipline in the life of Israel. We learn later that there's going to be a difference between confession and repentance. So let's all stand as we read this passage. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant they had dealt faith, faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. 
Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us press, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains um, that water the earth. So these are needed words. We could all agree with that. They are right words. We must return to the Lord. It tells us that God has created a tension in our lives that often tears away at things that we've depended on. But he also offers us healing. It says some are struck down as if to have their dreams and goals damaged. But he always provides healing to bind up the wound. Let us notice that whenever calamity befalls the children of God, we are still under the sovereignty of God. God was working in the tearing and in the healing, in the striking and in the binding. God was sovereign in both, right? I look at it this way. When a doctor drills a hole in your jaw to work on your teeth, we are willing to endure the pain because we know the goal is to find healing. All right, the pain is a consequence of care and healing. If someone hits your jaw with a ball-peen hammer in a fight, you're not willingly choosing to be hit. The pain is a consequence of ill intent, and I will do all I can to avoid that in the future. Right? When we return to God, we acknowledge his love and purpose for our life never ceases. And I am willing to endure because I know I am always in his loving grip. When we're far from God, you know what happens? We see him as out to get us. Or we see him as completely uninvolved altogether. Endurance is unlikely in those conditions. I know from experience. I can remember one time in my life when I doubted God's love for me. I can honestly say as a Christian, this is the only time that I remember saying this or doing this. But I said, said it out loud to God. It was a dark time in my life. We'd been married for about four years. I was working in a business 60, 70 hours a week. I was not making good decisions, and it actually shocked me that I said it out loud. I was in my driveway, hitting my hand on the steering wheel, and I said, you don't care what I said. Was it true? No. God does care. It was what I was feeling, but my feelings were the result of rebellion against God. My point is the knowledge of God's love for us is so foundational and critical I think everything else flows from that point. The reason we can faithfully love others is because our hearts are cared for by God. The reason a spouse does not get overly anxious when a mate says, I've had enough, I'm out of here, is because Christ is their rock. Now, I'm not going to give you five steps to know God's love because every person is different. Your journey is going to be different, but we got to know that it's going to have to happen with 
communing with God, with the word of God being our lifeline. Those have got to be a part of it. The primary point of verse 1 is that God is the source of healing and restoration, not making a deal with Assyria as both Israel and Judah were trying to do to get out from under this pressure they were feeling as God was trying to convict them. Often we look to man-made ways and idols we fashion to meet our needs that I think only God can meet, such as security, significance, and identity. We had this umbilical cord when we were born, and as adults, often it looks like adults are taking that umbilical cord and trying to attach it to something else to feed them. Usually, it's a spouse. And when it doesn't work, I'm out of here. But I'm here to tell you, security, significance, these are things that only God can fill, not a spouse. And the sooner we realize that, he's the one that gives us our identity as children of God. He wants to do that for us. Hosea 6, 1 through 2, I think are all good intentions and, and, and words. But unfortunately, we read God's response to them. Check this out in chapter 7. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. In other words, you say these words, but I see your pride. Yet they did not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. It's like saying, you know, honey, I am sorry I cheated on you. I won't be home tonight. I'm going to be at my girlfriend's. Uh, wait a minute. I thought you just apologized. You can't follow up the confession with an action that is not fitting with repentance. This was the stance of Israel. The words are nice, but the actions did not follow. The confession was too shallow and did not warrant divine restoration because it was not true repentance. There was not a change of action. There's an interesting phraseology in verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. The, the meaning of this verse is to accentuate a shortness of time. In other words, may this only be two or three days and we're going to be revived and our lives are going to be back to normal. Will be restored. We want the consequences of this judgment to cease. Could it be that the Israelites wanted happiness, not holiness? Were they after the change of circumstances, but not a change of character? Some can shed tears of remorse over their suffering, but not tears of repentance over their sin. And there's a big difference. It's reminiscent of the prophets and priests in Jeremiah's day that said, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. When we want change without broken hearts or surrendered wills, we view God as more of an assistant to help us achieve our own goals, to get us out of the mess. When that's done, I'm off doing it on my own. And what God wants is ownership of it all, to be Lord of our lives, for us to be obedient. So Israel was dug in, even though they said these words. They were prideful. 
And these are matters of the heart. No one can change another person in that state. That is a work of the Lord. You can pray for them. You might even, if a friendship calls for it, confront them with it. But that's not going to change them. It's a work of the Lord. James 1 says that relational conflicts that we experience are because of our selfish motives operating in our flesh. These are not the kinds of problems that take a quick fix. A doctor does not give you suntan lotion to deal with cancer. You will likely need surgery, other treatment. Selfish and prideful attitudes are not extracted with formulas. I want to suggest to you, a life submitted to Christ is the only solution to these kinds of problems because Christ is the only one that can change the human heart. As we submit to him daily, he gives us the strength to choose humility and love. You're probably not going to like the answer I'm about to give you right now, but the way we learn humility and endurance is through suffering. You know why? Because the flesh dies hard. So God puts our lives on the anvil of suffering. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, Romans says, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I was thinking of a passage that's not going to be up on the board but on the way in today of 1 Corinthians 9, and Paul said, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Do you get the idea that this is easy? You're training like an athlete, one boxing? No, this is hard, okay? Put that on your marquee sign in front of the church. This life is impossibly hard. Because without Christ, you're not living it. It's interesting that the word self-control can be translated ego control, our ego our pride, doing it our own way. This is what we battle the most. My biggest enemy is not other people. Not even Satan. Because Satan isn't on me all the time. He's an enemy, I'll, I'll give you that. But my ever-present biggest enemy is my flesh, my ego, my arrogance, my pride. And I hate to tell you, it's the same for you too because we live with it every day, and you have to die to the flesh. How is it that we're able to give and serve 
and love when maybe you don't feel like your needs are being met only when you die to self. When a marriage gets rocked to the core, when you don't get the job you wanted, when you are not healed, when you've asked God a hundred times, these are trials that test our faith and cause us to come to the end of ourselves. I don't have it all together. My life is, is frazzled. I don't have all the answers. What we have tried has not worked. I can remember Janet and I both getting on our knees, asking God what the next step is because we did not know what to do. And I don't think God was so interested in giving us information as he was in what? Getting us on our knees. The position is what he wants us in constantly, humbling ourselves before God because what we've tried hasn't worked. And it's time we stop blaming others Look to the Lord as our only hope. It's only in those times that the most sweet, intimate communion with God takes place. The verse says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Again, these words seem good in themselves, the people are saying they want to know the Lord, that his coming will come to them as showers, refresh them as it refreshes the land that is parched. That's awesome, gives it sustenance. There's nothing wrong with that sentiment in and of itself. However, religious sentiment must be matched by obedience or else it is nothing more than empty words. You can promise your kids all day long you're going to do something, but if you don't do it, it's just words. And we get the picture that's apparently what is happening with Israel here. Because verse 4 says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Now, only God can make that kind of a statement because he sees what is in their heart. Ephraim, of course, is speaking of Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. And Hosea writes as if it's in exasperation on behalf of the Lord. He said, your love is like the dew that occurs in the morning, but it's quickly do uh, done. It's gone later in the day. It's short-lived. What is worth considering is the word used for love in verse 4. It's the word hesed, the Hebrew word. It's an expression of an unfailing, loyal kind of affection and love. It is faithfulness. It is loyalty matched with kindness. I mean, it's easy to love people who agree with us. <laughs> That's nothing. It's easy to love people who we, you know, get along with, say nice things about you. That's not hesed. Hesed is to love continually. It's not fleeting. It's not quickly evaporated. It is a covenant love and loyalty. It loves when it's hard. It loves, get this, when your needs are not met. 
love when your feelings are hurt. Hesed, a beautiful picture, is the parent who loves when their child rejects them and rebels. That doesn't mean there aren't boundaries in a marriage or with parents, but there's still love. Hesed is the spouse who returns angry, angry words with calmness. Hesed is the person in the church who takes the hurtful words and still seeks reconciliation. God sees Christians with their Facebook and scripture verses on Instagram. All that's fine. He sees the bright lights, the shows, the testimonies. But you know what he's looking for? It's not any of that. It's has said. A deep, holy, committed love to him and to one another. When we say we press on to know the Lord, perhaps God wants us to know how much he loves us so that we are prepared to express has said to those around us. See, I, I want to be honest about this because, you know, I certainly don't want you to get the feeling that I'm beating you over the head. You just got to love more all that. No, because we can't do that. We do not have the strength within us to love the unlovely, to love when our needs are not met without Christ. A question we all have to face is, how can a parent show said when they're unloved by their children? How can a spouse express said when they feel betrayed? Can God touch our lives in those moments? Can I said during disappointment? Can we know his deep love for us? In the depths of our souls, not just a theological truth, we need that, but experientially, I feel full because of what God has done. See, I think the issue for most of us is that there are deep hurts that linger within us. Maybe we could never satisfy a parent. Maybe it was the divorce or loss of a parent. Maybe it was a spouse who has betrayed us. Maybe it was abuse as a child. Maybe it was the terrible words of a caregiver. And such things are like Velcro that sticks to our heart. And we consciously or unconsciously live with this attached to our heart. And we identify ourselves with this hurt. And soul surgery cannot be done with religious formulas or inspirational sermons. These are the job of the Holy Spirit. He's the balm for the soul. He's the one that breathes life into these hearts that hurt. At issue is, can we abide in the love of God or are we going to doubt his care for us like I did that one day in my driveway at 1644 West Swan Street in 1984. Think I remember it? You better believe I do because it's the last time I said those words. He's the balm for our soul. This might be the single biggest issue that you have to settle for yourself as a Christian. 
I'm not talking about head knowledge. A soul-settling confidence that we are cared for and loved dearly by God. Has said does not happen in a vacuum. Mm -mm. But flows from a heart that's secure in him. And usually that comes as a result of suffering. We have to face our pain, acknowledge that God is bigger, or we can anesthetize ourselves. More drink, this drug, another spouse, another church, different friends. Anything that changes the scenario that makes me feel better about myself. Never really dealing with the problem, which is our own heart. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. God uses prophets to deliver the news to his people that judgment is at hand. And that judgment cuts at the heart like a chisel hewns the rock. His judgment lays us open and reveals that we're but dust without him. His judgment is like a bright sunlight, obvious to all, comes swiftly like a bolt of lightning, a binding flash of light. Hebrew says, be glad for that. He's aware of your sin. He's confronting you with it. The worst thing you can do is be in denial, get angry at him. It hurts. It's painful, yes. But be glad he loves you enough to do that. God does not leave us alone. All the time you thought he was silent, and yet he was using the suffering, seeking humility and repentance, not from the other person, from you. You've been praying that God would, would change that other person, and all the while he was trying to get your attention. For said to be experienced in our life, we have to come to Christ without setting the terms. Admit our sin. Choose his way, his life. There's a death to our fleshly ways, the idols that we've constructed. It's the reason life has been so difficult for us. We feel like we've been hitting our head up against the wall because we wanted to stay attached to our fleshly ways or that, that hurt instead of giving it over to the Lord. We have fleshly ways of coping, and he's trying to strip those away from you, and sometimes the Velcro is hard to come apart because he's showing you you have nothing left but him. And this is where you say, Lord, I'm yours. Forgive me. Use me for your purposes, for your glory but it won't be easy. I'm not gonna stand up here and tell you, pray this prayer. Enjoy the Christian life. Enjoy all the financial blessing and healing. Well, God can do that. I welcome that. And I often pray for it. But I also know it includes suffering, difficulty especially when it comes to dying to self. Invariably, you know, I've told you this many, many times, but I'm going to say it again. 
it seems like, you know, you pastor a church, it's going to be a lot of conflict. And it's easy to blame. It's easy to say this person, that person. But invariably, God always brings me back to myself, arrogance, pride, and what he wants to do in my life. Because I can't change other people. God does that. But I can allow the Holy Spirit to change my own heart. It's true in a marriage. It's true in a church. It's true on the job. Let's go before the Lord.